Welcome to the Mike on Much podcast. I am your host, Mike Veerman, and I am here with my friend and trusty producer, Max Kerman. Max, how's it going? I'm doing pretty well. Good to see you. Good Miss, to see you as missed well. Missed you on the weekend. Uh, likewise. Uh, it's, this is actually a very exciting show, Max, because we have Edgar Wright on. We have the director of new film, Baby Driver. Which you saw. I did Sneak see. Sneak peek. I did. We'll get to that in a bit. Did you bring your camera into the theater and bootleg it? I filmed the whole thing. I've already <laughs> uploaded it online. Classic. Uh, Mike. We'll never get a press screening again. <laughs> um, but how have you been? You, uh, you were just in Cincinnati with the boys in the band. Yeah. So the summer is here and we are mostly working on weekends. Uh, we have the week off to play on Pete Rose and the Gamblers. And You know that uh, famous song by Loverboy, Everybody's Working for the Weekend? Yeah. When I was younger, I always thought it meant everybody was working on the weekend. Uh, Like, everybody's working for the weekend. I was like, why is it so happy if you have to work on the weekend? Yeah, this doesn't sound fun. No. And then I realized the reason everybody works during the week is for the weekend. Yeah. Did you always know that? I didn't know that. Okay. I understood this. But there are, there are a lot of other songs, though, uh, which I totally misunderstood. I can't think of anything right now, right. But, uh, which I totally got wrong. But you and the Arkells are working. We're working on the weekend. On the weekend. On the weekend. Yes. So... The band drove to Cincinnati, which is about eight hours away. Yeah. And there's a festival called Bunbury. And uh, it's cool. It's a cool festival. And the thing about our band is that we had a lot of doors open for us in Canada sort of immediately. And we were very lucky for that. Yeah. Uh, so when we got to play kind of like high profile shows right off the bat. And in America, it's taken a little bit longer. But in the last couple of years, we've finally gotten some of those chances. So like last, last year, for instance, we did... Uh, Lollapalooza and Firefly Music Festival. And this year we've done Coachella. We did Shaky Knees. Bunbury is one of those festivals that is on the bucket list. We did Sasquatch a couple a couple weeks ago as well. And Bunbury is like the big festival in Cincinnati, which is right near Kentucky. And I've sort of developed this idea that I think we should play as much as we can all the time, especially if we're going to be driving eight hours to go play one, you know, 30 or 45 minute set. Let's try to add in another show. Oh, I see where this is going. It's like, we got to go to Cincinnati anyway. It's like load up on the shows. Yeah. And the promoters usually love this idea. Uh, Our agents have to do a little bit extra work, but they like it. Our management, everybody's up for the work because they know the more we play, the better it usually is for the band. So, we asked to play like an after party in Cincinnati because we're like, you know, we're going to be there on Saturday night. We play Sunday afternoon. The promoter says, okay, yeah, we actually have a venue that you can play. We'll call it the official Bunbury after party. And we said, okay, sure, done. And we didn't really like, I think they sent over the specs of like what the stage looked like. I actually <laughs> remember getting the email. I was on a plane. I was like, yeah, whatever. Yes, 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 yes. So I didn't really look too closely at the details. Now, the venue is called Jekyll. And uh, I didn't know anything about Jekyll, uh, but we got there and it's right in the town square, but sort of in this very sort of like America town commercialized part of the, of the city. Cause a lot of the rock and roll venues are kind of like in the newer, like gentrifying hipster spots. They're not like right in the downtown commercial core. Sure. So the venue was like, like so, right next to an H and R block. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, but it was also kind of like if we were playing at like a, like in an Earl's in Toronto. <laughs> so, without the Earl's girls? Without the, No, there were a, kind of an equivalent Cincinnati version okay. of the Jekyll girls. But um, so we get there and, the, and I'm looking around. I'm like, maybe there's a stage in the basement that maybe there's a whole other room that I can't see. But it turns out the stage is this like basically like a DJ booth. It's like it's basically a nightclub uh, during the day, it's a restaurant. In the evening, it turns into a nightclub. And the stage is probably about five feet deep. And I want to say 
20 feet long. Okay. So typically, Tim, our drummer, sets up at the back. But there's no possible way that could ha- happen. Oh, so you had, I, go, you had to go five wide. We had to go five wide. <laughs> but I was feeling so bad because I'm always the guy who's sort of like pushing for this stuff, and I'm sort of like, "All right, guys, we got this other gig. Let's get excited. This is awesome. This is awesome." And we show up at this venue, and it's like, I was like, "Are we gonna have to cancel the gig?" Now, not only is the stage five feet wide, there's also a barricade at the front of the stage <laughs> and stages don't like at, like on the stage not oh so it's taking up some of your room you will yeah it's, i mean you can't really see the lower half of our body which is just very unusual if you're in a <laughs> rock and roll band it looks like one of those chuck e cheese stages like it was just your upper torsos as you guys perform exactly so i was like just feeling so shitty about it and i think a lot of bands will tell you this there is a trauma of your early gigs uh, where nobody showed up that yeah. will always stay with you. So, and especially when we're going to America, I always just assume nobody's going to be there. And I'd say 15% of the time, that's true. The other 85% of the time, the shows are great. So I was like, oh, this is going to be a nightmare. And, and I sent a text to the guys. We sound checked while people were eating dinner. And so we're making all this racket and there's people <laughs> trying to watch sports and eat their like chicken wings. And then you're just like, <laughs> just being so obnoxious. I mean, we did like half a song. Like, all right, this is fine. So anyway, uh, I said to text the guys, I was like, you know, I know the the vibe stinks in there right now, but you know, we'll do our best and we'll learn from it and we'll you know, we'll carry on. And then actually it was so nice, Nick sent me a private text, like in outside the group message. Your bass going, player. Our bass player saying, Hey Nick, you he's like, Hey man, don't feel bad. You gotta keep taking shots. And sometimes when you take those shots, you end up playing in a UFC bar. But it's all good. It's like, like we don't get anywhere without trying. It was very. I was like, Nick, I love you, brother. I needed that because so, so Nick was positive. So Nick was very positive. And, How were the other three? The other guys were good. Like nobody was like everyone was being an adult about it. But I know in everyone's mind, it was like this is a f-ing, like what the hell are we doing here kind of thing. Yeah. So anyway, show rolls around. It's like eleven thirty. It's an after party and. We uh, there was actually a bunch of people that were that came out to see us, and at this point, the the tables, the high top tables that were previously used for eating dinner, are cleared out of the way. There's a dance floor happening, and I could definitely tell some of the Arkells fans were like, "Where the hell are we right now?" But because people were probably just drunk enough, and the lights were off, and they saw like instruments on a stage, it it, it resembled a normal rock and roll show. Right. That no one really questioned it too much, so. I took on the attitude. I was like, we need to make this into like a sweaty, dirty rock and roll show. We need to like pretend like we're playing at like the Silver Dollar Lounge in Toronto, like make it like a proper show. So we kind of like launched into the set and people were really into it. And I was like jumping over the barricade. You can see a photo on Arkell's Instagram of me like literally jumping over the barricade. And I was sort of pushing people around and being really snarly and people like seemed to really like it. And the funniest part though was like during our set, we're like singing one of our songs at the back of the room, uh, there's a bottle surface happening where the waitresses come out with sparkles. You know, those spark, uh, what are those things called? Sparklers. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's like a parade of waitresses with their sparklers because whenever anybody orders a, if you've ever been to a club, this is what happens. You order a bottle and there's a bunch, there's a parade of waitresses. Also, one of the waitresses that was there early in the day, she had like changed outfits and was like not wearing any pants anymore. <laughs> what? Yeah, it was like kind of like a very like kind of see through sort of thong <laughs> apparatus. It was like that was the kind of place. We Cincinnati were. man. But anyway, so we we finished the uh, the set. We did it. We covered dancing in the dark, and I got in the crowd. I was dancing with everybody, and I said on the microphone, I was like, "All right, 
bring us over a bunch of those sparklers. We're not ordering the bottle, but we want the sparklers. <laughs> so uh, then all the waitresses came over with sparklers. Really? And were like dancing. And, all, and the people in the crowd were like a little bewildered. Sparklers at midnight when everyone's a little drunk are always kind of awesome, no matter what, right. I think. And uh, the show ended up being like super memorable. And our agent, our booking agent, uh, Adam Countryman was there. And he's like, I'm not just saying this because the venue's weird, but that might have been my favorite Arkell show of all time. <laughs> <laughs> and so we, we really turned the thing into like a very memorable concert. Well, it was going to be memorable either way. Yeah. And, and we made it into a, a positive memory. memory. Yeah. Yeah. Be, yeah. Like, and, and also people after the show who I never met before were like, that was, that show blew my mind. That's my favorite show I've ever been to. So anyway, I was, I was proud of us. We pulled it off. And then anyway, the next day we played the festival, proper festival set. And it was a beautiful day, a big crowd. Uh, and it was awesome. So we made the most of our time in Cincinnati, which was always the hope. And it all worked out. And it all worked out. Got to have a positive attitude. Exactly. Things are going to work out, my man. Yeah. Um, I was also in the States this weekend. Yeah. Well, so you're doing something a little different. Yeah. Uh, I was in Michigan, uh, Midland, Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, yesterday when I asked you, Mike, where's Midland? You're like, uh, that's Midland. <laughs> like, where, where in Michigan is this? Oh, it's Midland. I don't I'm like, but like, where is it? Because I I'm interested in geography. Yeah. And you just looked at me like you know me with maps. Back. I don't know where it was. <laughs> and and you famously have a very poor sense of direction. That so is a fact. You had no idea where where you were going. You were just in the car. I was just in the car. Yeah. Uh, happy to go along. So this is the second year in a row I've done this. There's this big antique festival in Michigan, and I go with my uh, my friend Randall and his wife and their friends. And so Danica and I we tag along. They've been doing this for years, but it's kind of like not like a, a traditional thing where you go down and like you just kind of antique. They like get two like big hotel rooms loaded up with American beer, Miller High Life, and uh, they just have like the best sort of three days antiquing and then going back to the hotel, hitting the hot tub at the Holiday Inn or whatever the hotel was. I don't even know what the hotel was, man. I don't know where Midland <laughs> is. I don't know what the hotel was. I was just along for the ride. Uh, I As far as antiquing, I literally got a Vince Carter, Tracy McGrady like uh, basketball card. Oh, that's sweet. And it was to remind myself that if you have a good thing, don't mess it up because those guys could have won a championship and their egos got in the way. So let's never let that happen to the podcast. Yeah, I never. No, okay. We'll never do that. Um, and I also got this Michael Jordan basketball that says best team ever with the the record uh, uh, that they had. In not the, anymore. Not anymore. So I thought it was a bit of a collector's item. Oh, that's so cool. So I got those two things for $4 American. And then I went to the trunk of the car and then just drank and sat in the sun. <laughs> so that was my antiquing adventure. But Danica got lots of great stuff. See... Uh, when we toured in, in Europe, the, the hotel rooms are small and all the beds are single beds. <laughs> and like the bathrooms are like four square feet. They're brutal. And so we, so when we're, whenever we're there, we're like, oh man, I miss those big fat American beds. <laughs> you know, everything in America is like awesome and big. I mean, it also has led to a lot of problems as we know. Uh, th there is maybe a gluttonous part of that society. Right. Is that, uh, but I'll uh, take the big beds. Yeah. But, but the thing is when you're down there and you're like, Ah, oh, these beds are so big. It's like there's usually like a free happy hour where you're like going down the lobby and people are handing you like filler <laughs> lights. What the hell's going on? You're like, oh, America, America. Yeah. But we're both back in town. We're in Canada. Yes. It's good to see you. It's great to see you. And today on the show, we have Edgar Wright. The J. Edgar Wright. That's what you keep calling him. That's right. Like J. Edgar Hoover. Yeah. <laughs> when I was prepping for the interview, I kept on like referring to like the Bay of Pigs and other international <laughs> You did all the wrong research. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm actually going to this interview in about two hours from now. Uh, I'm pretty excited. Yeah. In, in the prep, he seems like a, a delightful guy. Hopefully he's in a good mood because uh, 
He's a very charming British dude. And I, you know I have a thing for charming British dudes. You really do. You yeah. love that accent. Mm-hmm. The one thing I want to ask him, and maybe we can talk about this now for a second, is I'm really interested in sort of the class structure of British society. And because Brits really care about that, like whether you went to private school or public school, I think they call it state school and public school. It's like a different terminology. Right. And because I've read articles about how like people in the entertainment arts and who become successful, especially in music, all went to these private institutions, like these fancy schools, basically. And and there's definitely um, a feeling because I think if you look at like the top 40 of like the British charts, like even though private school kids only make up like 10% of the population, they make up 80% of the charts, hmm. which is interesting, which, me, which means that there's... Well, there's a big thing about this, about basically every successful actor that's come over here, like your Benedict Cumberbatches, yeah. your Eddie Redmaynes, like all of these, uh, your British actresses, they're all, they all come from really influential sort of wealthy families. families. So... Because they can afford to pursue the arts. Exactly. But what I want to get to with Edgar Wright is that his parents were like art teachers. And I think like... So you're saying he's working class. So I, th- I think he, I might be wrong and maybe I'll be proved wrong, but that might be a, a topic for you to investigate. Or it, I don't know how you like, you say to someone, so you grew up like not on the right side of the tracks, right? Or like, right. because you don't want to sound like condescending or mean, but there, I think that it is an interesting conversation to be had, whether you came from a rich family or working class family and how that has affected your worldview and, you know how that changed your path in one way or another. Absolutely. So can you ask that question somehow eloquently in a way more eloquent way than I just kind of put it out there? We'll see the vibe, Max. Okay, figure it out. All right, listen, we're going to get to Edgar Wright right now. All right, we're just we're going to start rolling. Let's do it. Because that's how we do it. So I'm Mike. I'm the host of the, the show. This is Shane. He's our uh, pop culture aficionado. It's a bit of an exaggeration, but I just really wanted to be here for this. Oh, one. cool, man. I'm normally not in the interviews. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you said you've been going since what, like 6.30 a.m.? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, right. sorry. I didn't know we started. <laughs> yes, uh, I left the hotel at 6.55 a.m. this morning. I saw you did a thing with Strombo last night. Yeah, at the Scotiabank. How was that? It was great. I, um, yeah, I flew in yesterday. Uh, the Scotiabank, when I was here filming Scott Pilgrim, the Scotiabank was the cinema around the corner from my house. Oh. So I knew it very well. You know, it's funny. We actually had, speaking of Scott Pilgrim, Chris Murphy from Sloan. Oh, yeah. We were chatting with him, and we actually got into him sort of helping everyone learn how to play, sort of look like they were authentically uh, musicians. Yeah, it was great. I remember fondly, there was like a crane shot. It's in the opening credit sequence where Chris Murphy would be sort of standing off camera, basically like acting out the song whilst the actors (laughs) were doing it, especially for Mark Webber, who did not know how to play guitar and sort of (laughs) learned his bits. So this is an amazing thing is like not just doing the shots and the camera pulling back, but just having Chris Murphy like playing along to the music as well and acting it out was amazing. He was just jamming out to the side. He was jamming out. So it was like they was like literally like for Mark Webber is like follow, follow me, like do what I'm doing. And it was just there for sort of vibes and he was like sort of so it's a funny thing of all the actors doing their bits, but also out of the corner of your eye, Chris Murphy, like really like sort of going for it. It was amazing. Is that hard for you to cast an actor that's supposed to be, you know, good at an instrument? Like, I mean, is it a thing where you would be like, maybe we should just get a musician? Well, I think, you know, like um, most of the time, I think sort of like Mark Webber found it the toughest, actually. I think, I think he was a complete novice at the guitar. So he sort of, he learned what he needed to do with those songs. 
uh, Alison Pill as well like learned the drums for the movie. He mentioned that she was really dedicated to learning those drums. Yeah, I think she did a great job. I think she really looks fierce doing it. (laughs) A lot of the other people already played instruments. So Michael Sarah is actually a good guitarist and Brandon Routh also played guitar. So, you know, those guys had already, you know, um, done some of it. But uh, no, I think, I don't know. I think you usually go for like the actor and then, you know, get somebody like Chris who can like help like yeah. do band camp with them. So I think it was very funny, especially for the Canadian actors in it, like sort of Alison Pill was like, Chris Murphy's our guitar, <laughs> our guitar teacher yeah. or our drums teacher rather, you know. Yeah, I love Sloan. Yeah. I think Canadian institution, man. Speaking of music, I kind of wanted to start with the, uh, the soundtrack for Baby Driver. I mean, for you, how does the process of choosing songs work? Are you sort of writing scenes with songs in mind? Do song ideas come when you're editing? No, in this film, nothing came afterwards. It was all pre-planned because, as you see in the movie, um, the songs are sort of like featured in the movie as and he's actually listening to them and he's actually like sort of, you know, lots of scenes. All the shooting has to be planned around those yeah, songs yeah. and those beats. Yeah, exactly. So, But those, when you're writing, do you know the tune that you're going to use? Yeah. So I wrote the songs into the script. So I think when I started, before I started writing, I maybe had like, the eight big songs, set pieces worked out and I knew basically what was going to go with them. So it was like John Spencer Blues Explosion, The Damned, the tequila cover, like Hocus Pocus, the blur bit, uh, the queen bit, you know, the Barry White bit. So you think of them in terms of these are the big numbers. And, um, and then when I wrote the rest of the film, I wouldn't start writing a scene until I had the right uh, song. So I would literally sit there with my <laughs> iTunes open and just be like sort of going through trying to find the right track for the for the for the scene. And I wouldn't write it until I had the right thing. And I'd say like from the first draft of the script to the finished film, I'd say ninety percent of the songs remain the same. Um Did any of them have to change because of copyright or just Nothing nothing was like it was nothing like, oh, we can't afford Led Zeppelin or something like that. It was more the thing like sometimes like some dance tracks uh, had samples that were unclearable. Uh. Like they had used a sample without clearing it with the original, you know. And then if you're clearing it for a movie and it's going to be like in a movie released by Sony Pictures, those bands are like, yeah, no, don't put that in the movie. Because <laughs> I think that they're, they're eventually going to get in trouble. Yeah, we didn't clear it originally. Exactly. Do you watch that show, The Leftovers? The uh, I haven't, show? I'm not caught up on it. I haven't watched right. it recently. I haven't watched any of the third season. Oh, no. very good. Um, but they talked about uh, clearance of music. They wanted to use a, a Wu-Tang song at oh, one yeah. point, and that's the exact issue they ran into, where yeah. samples on samples from way back, and basically you just can't clear those tunes. Yeah. I mean, in a couple of instances, um, we I used... There were about three different tracks, either by like dance or hip-hop acts, and they just hadn't cleared the samples. And in a couple of cases, I went on who sampled, and I just cleared the original sample itself. <laughs> So there's one song on the soundtrack, Early in the Morning by Alexis Corner, which I sort of found that because it's like, oh, this is that bit in its original form. Well, let's just use this. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting like you end up using like some rare grooves and like sort of jazz songs and stuff because like those were the original samples. Yeah. Um, you know, I think to touch sort of all aspects of making a film, writing, directing, producing, um, you have to be pretty meticulous and detail-oriented. Are those attributes that sort of come easily to you? Are, are you naturally that way? I think so. I think about things that I'm passionate about, I think are very specific and precise. 
and meticulous. <coughs> so I think, you know, this is a movie that's sort of been building up to that. I've always done, you know, scenes in my other movies or TV stuff where I've used music. And, uh, you know, like, I mean, if you think... in Shaun of the Dead has that scene, the queen scene, where they're, like, fighting the zombie to Don't Stop Me Now. And that sort of became the most famous scene from that movie. So it's something where I thought, well... I'd already I'd already had the idea for Baby Driver. It's definitely pushing that direction. It's could I do an entire film like that, where like every scene is a different song? Well, I mean, I guess getting into sort of the minutia of how you, I guess, build a film. You know, you have Kevin Spacey, Jamie Foxx, uh, John Hamm, sort of all in supporting roles. When you're in the early stages, are those sort of like wishless people? Um, and how do you go about casting? Do you have personal relationships with them? Well, um, in that particular case. The only member of the cast that I knew before the film was also the person that I wrote the part for, which was John Hamm. I wrote that part for him. Knowing and, he would be in the film or with well, him in mind? Well, you don't, in your mind. And, you know, obviously he's aware of it. But you never know what, when you actually get to make the movie. Is, like, is he going to be available, et cetera, et cetera. So actually that was one of those great things is that John had read the first draft of the script. John had even done a read-through of the first draft of the script back in, like, 2012. Um... So then when it came to doing it, then it was great. It's like, oh, John's going to play the part. I think when I wrote the script, I maybe didn't think of act actors as big as Jamie and Kevin to play those parts. So when those people came up and we went to them and they said, yes, that was extraordinary. So it wasn't like I had a previous um, relationship with either of them. I met them through the movie. Would you ever ask Kevin Spacey or uh, Jimmy Fox for an audition, or is that when you get to a certain level, is that unheard of? No, I think when you've won Best Actor Oscar, you don't have to audition anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure, maybe, you know, like, so once you've got the Oscar, no more auditions. Right. So, but John Hamm, you were able to? No, John didn't, audi uh, John oh. didn't audition either. Oh, just like a read-through you just do with him? Oh, yeah, he just, uh, he did a read-through where I finished the first draft of the script, and he came in um, to do a read-through with some other actors so we could just hear it aloud. So he was just helping out. Right. But no, he didn't audition either. So how does a meeting like that take place? Do you like you go for a lunch, or is it all done through intermediates? Like, Do you need to pitch the film and be like, hey, this is kind of deal, or is Kevin Spacey... Like I think with, like, Ke uh, uh, um, in the case of Kevin, it was literally... I think at one point somebody else was doing the role and was interested in doing it, and then they dropped out because of a schedule issue which basically means that they got offered more money somewhere else. <laughs> and, and then Kevin Spacey, who previously had not been available, was suddenly available because he was supposed to be doing a play and then he wasn't doing the play anymore. Um, I think he's doing it right now, in fact. So basically, like, suddenly Kevin Spacey became available. And so somebody said, oh, Kevin's available. What about him for Doc? And I was like, great. Do you think he'll do it? And I think within 48 hours... Kevin had read it and I was flying to Baltimore to meet him whilst he was shooting House of Cards. And then we had like like brunch and like talked about the movie and, uh, you know, and, and then he was in. Had he been a fan of your earlier work? Yes, I wasn't aware of that. I think, I, maybe I knew a little bit about that because I knew that he knew Simon Pegg and also Jessica Hines uh, in, from Spaced. Like, he had definitely worked with Jessica at the Old Vic in London. So he was, I'd never met him, but he was aware of my, uh, of work. Going back a bit, your parents were art teachers? Mm. I guess, how did their lifestyle and your upbringing sort of shape your early fandom and the desire to create for yourself? 
Yeah. So my parents are both art teachers and then, well, they were art teachers and then they sort of dropped out of teaching to become artists and did, you know, a variety of like, um, sort of, you know, businesses with their like illustration. And then they had to go back to teaching, I think reluctantly when I was a teenager, but they were, me and my brother had both did art and they were very supportive of that. And, you know, it, they very much encouraged, they knew that we were both interested in movies, so they encouraged us to, um, in that direction, even though they themselves had no, like, film industry connections or, you know, basically started with, um, you know, sometimes if you, with your brother or a sibling, you get, like, a joint Christmas present. Oh, yeah, I, yeah. I, all the time, my brother. So I think me and my brother got a joint Christmas and birthday present. So like one present that's spanning four, <laughs> four different events. To four birds with one present. Exactly. Yeah. But it was like a secondhand Super 8 camera. So that was like a sort of like a big present that was like spanning like sort of birthdays and Christmases. And that was how we started doing stuff. We started fooling around with this Super 8 camera making like silly little shorts and stuff. With my school friends. Yeah, well, I mean, this is kind of something I wanted to get to. Like, you're talking about the one present, your parents maybe having to go back and teach. Um, you, we hear a lot about sort of the class system in England. And then maybe people that come out of there that become super successful. You know, you read articles about, like, Cumberbatch or all these people. And they sort of come from this sort of more elite level. How difficult is it to sort of, I guess, make it in the arts if you're not starting there without those film connections, like you said? Well, it's funny. I think sort of, like, both in the UK and especially here... I think people think that I'm like posher than I am, maybe because it's just the name or something like that. But, you know, I went to the equivalent of like state school. I went to a comprehensive. I didn't go to a private school. Um, and I think people just assume that I did or like I had some kind of connections, but it's not the case. So very proudly <clears throat> from like a state school. And, you know, I think the thing is, is that I probably snuck in. I went to art college I probably snuck in in one of the last years where they actually had student grants before student loans. Ah. You know, like, so God knows if I had actually gone to art college and I'd probably still be paying back my student loan right now. So I feel very strongly about that in terms of, like, I was very lucky to get, like, a student grant to go to college. Otherwise, who knows what I'd be doing. Well, I think that's the more rare sort of path, right? Like you said, you get a grant and then now you're you know, directing these major films and you've made it into this sort of elite level. Do you think that that's a, a path that can be followed by maybe aspiring directors or anyone in the arts that doesn't come from that upper echelon? Like oh, absolutely. For sure. I don't think that, I mean, Quentin Tarantino isn't from a rich background. Quentin Tarantino But he's not from England either. True, but like he's not from money. And like sort of... Well, I guess that's what I was getting at is maybe the differences between maybe like uh, America, the American dream okay, is essentially that, but then in England is it more difficult with the mm. success of people in that other tier, let's say. I'm not sure that that's necessarily true. Like, you know, Alfred Hitchcock, I think, was like the son of a market stall owner, I think. Right. You know, so I don't, I don't know if that's necessarily the case. I think it really just comes down... This is going to sound cocky saying this, but I think it just really comes down to talent at the end of the day. <laughs> I saw this thing once. It was, it was really brutal, but it was the thing that so people don't want to hear sometimes. I saw Quentin Tarantino do this Q&A at Comic-Con, and this guy stood up and said, um, said, oh, Mr. Tarantino, I'm an independent filmmaker, and do you have any advice of how to get my movie seen? Like, um, uh, it, you know, it's very difficult to get your work seen in the independent sector now, and what advice would you give me? And Quentin Tarantino replied, 
completely brutally honest, said, um, if your film's great, people will see it. If you're not getting your work seen, maybe it's not that great. And I was like, ouch. But he was right, you know. So there is that thing, I think, sort of the main thing. And listen, I didn't have like an overnight success story. I made like a, you know, between like getting out of college and um, making, I made a movie when I was 20 years old. It's very, very silly. But then, you know, it's like another 10 years before Shaun of the Dead. Yeah. So it's not like sort of I was doing it the next year. I feel like, in fact, Shaun of the Dead, I got a second chance because I thought my first film I did when I was 20 was no good. And, um, oh, not good, not good enough. It's actually, I, I feel better about it now, actually. <laughs> I feel better about it now than I did at the time. But, um, you know, I got into TV after that. And then that, t- doing TV essentially became my college. Uh. It was something that, like, doing a lot of TV and doing a lot of comedy TV was like, I was basically like learning on the job. So then... When Shaun the Dead came around and we were trying to get that off the ground, it really felt like, oh, I'm getting like a second chance to make my first movie. Yeah. That's what it felt like. As a kid, what genres were you most drawn to? Oh, everything. I think when I was making like silly films with my school friends, I did a Western. I did like a superhero movie. I did a cop movie. I did like a horror film. I did little action films, so sort of a bit of anything. Usually because I came from a, quite a rural uh, like um, area in the UK. In fact, where Hot Fuzz is shot is my hometown. And as such, there were always like things that would seem ridiculous being in like a quiet, sleepy English town. Right. So that's just something that, and I think this goes through like the movies, especially like Hot Fuzz is like the inherently inherently ridiculous notion of this big bombastic genre film in an otherwise sleepy kind of town were you a star wars or a star trek guy um i guess well, as a kid i was probably a bit of both i, I guess. Was, thought you'd probably say that i was never a star trek the next generation guy simon and nick used to love that show but i never saw next Generation. that's my shit man yeah it's funny simon and nick love star trek the next generation but i was always original series kid and i liked the films up to a point um and then, um, but Star Wars was the first movie that I ever saw. I saw Star Wars at age three. <laughs> Seriously. Do you recall that? Though? I do. I do remember going Do you have to a memory cin- from age three? I remember being in the cinema. It was my first time ever in a cinema. And I remember the ceiling, the ceiling of the cinema had stars on it, like glow in the dark stars. So it was a very strange experience, just the ceremony of the lights going down and you know, the opening scene. So I do remember watching it, yeah. Have you always had that editing style, that very quick, like, Requiem for a Dream, Guy Ritchie style? Of um, see, I would call it uh, Martin Scorsese style. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, same, the same place that they got it from. Um, but uh, uh, Walter Hill, in fact, as well. Like, his, his editing style was very sort of influential to me. I think um, that's something that kind of, and Sam Raimi as well. That uh, that sort of came to me. Um, I think I always wanted to do that style, but that sort of came to be a bit more when I was doing TV stuff. Like my first movie doesn't have enough of that, and actually was the biggest lesson learned on my first movie is it just <clears throat> didn't have enough time and therefore not enough coverage of shots to make it kind of go fast. So I think once I started doing TV, especially with spaced, that kind of 
elements started to come into it of the kind of the quick shots, you know, and quick edits. Have you ever counted how many edits are in one of your films? Yes. <laughs> I can't memorize them, though, but it's a lot. Like I, I remember on, like, sort of... I remember that uh, um, Hot Fuzz had, like, 1,700 shots. And Scott Pilgrim had 2,000 shots. And I remember we essentially had finished... Um, the movie on shot 1,999. And um, and I said, wow, we should just make up another shot. So we hit 2,000. <laughs> so <laughs> the last shot was completely fabricated. I was like, well, let's just do another shot because we want to hit 2,000. And we l- ended on slate 2,000. As a director, how collaborative are you with actors? Are you a my way or the highway sort of guy? Or are you, it's an open dialogue? Well, I think the thing is, is the ones, if you've written the script, that's what I'm getting. It's at. less open to interpretation anyway. Yeah. Because I think if you're like a director and somebody else has written it, then, you know, you're definitely, it's more up for discussion with the actors. But with someone like Baby Driver, I wrote it and I'm directing it. So there's not really that much discussion in terms of what it's supposed to be, because the actor then talks to me as the writer and director. So I would say, like, you know, definitely give people, like, sort of license to sort of have fun with it, you know, and, and, but it's not, but there's not a lot of deviation from the, the tone that I'm setting. Right. Have you ever had a a sort of a conversation where, you know, they have suggestions on lines? Oh, yeah. I mean, I won't mention any names. There's one person (laughs) in one of the films that when we did a read through was like way bigger than I thought it would be. And I was kind of surprised and I sort of had, and then had to sort of, you know, just quietly and diplomatically kind of just get them to sort of like tone it down until it was kind of of a piece with the rest of the movie. And it wasn't like it was bad or anything. It was just different and weird and not really in the tone of the rest of the movie. So some of those things you have to be pretty diplomatic. Which movie was that on? I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) (laughs) You're probably able to figure it out, so I won't tell you. I guess lastly, as we're wrapping this up, I mean, you have a lot of films and you've gone through this process. You do press, all this stuff. How much has it changed? What's the feeling as you're gearing up to release a new film, anticipating reviews, what people will think, what your peers will think, how it's going to be received? How do you frame that in your own mind? Um, I don't think it really gets any different. I mean, I think the thing is, is that you, you know, like sort of, you know, I'm very proud of the movie and all, all you can do really is just like, make the best movie you can and just kind of get the word out. And anything beyond that is like sort of like is, you know, just in the lap of the gods. So I think it's something like where I probably get a little bit more relaxed now because it's like, I know like sort of, um, I don't know. I definitely feel, probably feel a little bit more relaxed with this one, but I have no idea like sort of like how it will do or anything, but, to me, like the sort of thing is, I did my like part of it, which is like I made the best movie I could, and uh, I'm really happy with that. So it's like then it's like sort of the promotion thing is just like me and the cast getting the word out about the movie. How close do you uh, pay attention to the thermometer? <laughs> <laughs> well, when it's going good, you think it's it's pretty good. Like it's, <laughs> like, it's, sort of it's like, at a hundred right now. So I know it's it's crazy. I mean, it will never hold, and they never do. Not even Toy Story three stuck at a hundred. Yeah. Not, yeah. Get out also like sort of was a hundred. Did Get Out like drop? Dropped. It dropped. It did. Yeah, oh. yeah. 
Yeah. Um, so, so it's, but listen, it's very nice. I can't complain. Well, thanks so much for your time, man. Thank you for having me. Welcome to everybody's favorite part of the episode, the dessert. We are here with Shane Cunningham, our pop culture aficionado. Can we cross promote another podcast that I was on? Of course. Absolutely. You were on another podcast? Yeah. So it was cool. Like I was the featured guest. Oh, wow. So it's exciting. Yeah. My friend, uh, Jared Diggs, oh, he yeah. gave me my uh, first shot, I guess, in show business. Like uh-huh. when I was 18. He had me co-hosting a show with him that was on before Saturday Night Live. He's a friend of mine. I play basketball with him uh, every week. Exactly. So I think he wanted you because you're obviously a much bigger draw. And then I think he wanted Mike. <laughs> I consider JR a friend as well. I also play basketball with him. Yeah, we're all, we're all buddies with him. Uh, but anyway, I, it was an hour and a half long interview. And for some reason... I was very good on that uh, as as a guest, like w- much better than I am here for some reason. I don't oh, know. Were you why. talking about your life and work? And- yeah, I think it was easier because when he, I come here, I try to plan too much. Yeah. When you're planning, you're trying to remember, so I talk very slow, and I don't know. I yeah, just, okay. But anyway, check that out. It should be available at the time of this recording. If it's you're, up you're already. Good. Yeah, it's called J.R. Diggs, Man in a Van. J-R-D-I-G-S. Yeah, it's a lot of me for an hour and a half, so... Uh, you know what? That'll, that'll be good, because I think we know you well, and we have a sense of what your story is, but for people who just kind of casually listen to the show and just think you're a crazy person, getting some context for you will be very helpful, I think. It'll inf- it'll shape you in, in, a, in a more encompassing way. Yeah, when, when we talk a lot about love... There, the there we go. Yeah. Are, are we in danger of losing you to J.R. Diggs' podcast? Uh, there was talk of having me on, but, you know, like I would never, like you said with Tracy McGrady and Vince Carter, we got to keep the team together. Anything that's going to break us apart, I'm not going to be a part of. <laughs> <laughs> All right, set up our interesting and unique dessert today, Shane. Okay, so like Max was just alluding to, some people think I'm crazy, maybe, and I think some people who work with me think maybe I'm I don't know. Like, I think of the people who sit behind me at work, uh-huh. especially if they can see my monitor. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm, the way I the way I work is in a very strange way. My desk is very messy. Like, there's workout a, a workout bag, like basketball everywhere. There's like f- Ziploc containers filled with like food remnants. I'm very messy, and I'm always watching like to catch a predator at work or something like while I'm coming up with creative ideas. It's just the way I operate in a very in a way that makes it look like I'm absolutely doing nothing and kind of getting away with murder. <laughs> but like if the boss walks by, I'll actually make it look like I'm working, which ironically I'm not working. And then it was, <laughs> but like, you know what I mean? But I know optically. Yeah, so when, it, when the optics look like you're really trying hard, you're I'm actually not, not doing anything. But when it looks like I'm not working, I am. Okay. So the people who sit behind me, I think they think I'm a bit of a dumbass. At least that's always been my paranoid fear which, you know, I thought maybe I'm being delusional or overly, overly sensitive, which I get accused of a lot. But uh, there was, I've, I've heard this rumor going around, uh, and a couple of sources have told me that there's been some, I won't call them disparaging remarks, but I've been talked about in a, in a meeting. I was brought up in a meeting of a department I used to be in, and I was like, okay, I want to bring in the person who told me that they, they were in this meeting and... and you know, get to the bottom of it and clear some things up too, because there's a little bit of misinformation going on. Now, before you set this up, this is in direct relation to a very joyous thing, which is your three iHeartRadio MMVA award nominations. This right. is what all of this controversy surrounds, right? <laughs> it, it, it is. Okay. So, um, 
Wait, wait, in the, the word controversy, like in relation to this conversation is hilarious, but carry on. Well, I think if, <laughs> I think if people are out there directing... Like the controversies of the world. I think the idea, right. the idea of a guy like me who's perceived as maybe a bit of a... a lazy a, butt. A lazy butt, not as creative as the other people in the department, maybe. Yeah. They might look at it like, oh, this guy's nominated for more MMVAs than Justin Bieber, and I'm, <laughs> I'm actually doing work at work. So anyway, a person walked up to me, and this person has asked... To uh, remain anonymous. Yeah. So we're doing the witness protection treatment. Could be a man or woman. Could be anyone. And we're going to have this person explain what <laughs> happened in this meeting because this person may or may not have been in the meeting. So without further ado, <laughs> take it away. <laughs> I'll cut the name. <laughs> so tell, tell our listeners what you told me. Set it up for us if you don't mind. Um, we had the meeting, and I wasn't even aware uh, that you were even nominated. And it was stated that, how can a guy like that be nominated? What, what was, say it the way you told me, though. What was said in the meeting? It was stated that a guy like that being nominated, especially when you work for the company, um... Maybe it's not really justified in terms of the creative. The way I heard it the first time that you told me was that you said the guy made an announcement during the meeting saying, I heard a rumor, and this may not be true, but Shane Cunningham is nominated for three MMVAs. Is that more accurate? I would say yes. Okay. Why didn't you tell it like that? (laughs) being very dramatic one thing (laughs) is if they say how can a guy like that be nominated sounds very bad and derogatory but i've heard shane cunningham's nominated for three coming him (laughs) my whole porn name comes back to haunt me (laughs) um be nominated it doesn't the way shane just said it doesn't sound as um offensive to me as the way uh that you just described it uh guest uh speaker would you like another try to say how it might have happened more accurately the way you told it to me to be honest, I feel like I've already said too much. <laughs> can, can you can you say who said it? Unfortunately, I'm not able to. Okay, can you nod at me? I'll just say some names. We're going to beep all these names, but it was wasn't it? All right, I thought so. I want to know, what was the reaction of everyone else in the room? There are people that don't give a shit, and there are people that agreed, and... I would say more so that it was on on the not giving a shit side in terms of the, the tone in the room. How many people uh, agreed, would you say? A percentage. I would say about like maybe 25% agreed, but it was more of a, it was like a passive agreement as opposed to let's go, you know, kick Shane's ass. It wasn't like that. So do you think the main issue is that uh, dumbass Shane was nominated or the fact that I'm a Bell Media employee and I was nominated. I think it is the latter, to be honest. That he's an employee? I think so. As opposed to it being like a direct targeted attack, I think that it was the latter. Were they disparaging his work? No, we didn't discuss the work. What, was that the subtext though, to them saying that? Do you feel like? I feel like you want to push me in that direction. No. <laughs> 
I'm genuinely curious. No, you're genuinely wanting to push me in that direction. (laughs) I mean, I think uh, what our guest speaker here is alluding to is that nobody really gives a shit about this whole thing. There's one guy who sits behind Mm -hmm. you. I mean, this might be a lesson in diplomacy where... He, he probably just like the only thing he knows about you is that he looks over your shoulder and you're not doing anything. So, if and got this to, guy's a very artsy and if he guy. Got, so, if he got to yeah. know you a little bit better, he'd probably understand your process and he would never bring that up in a meeting ever again. So, I think that's really what this whole thing comes down to. Right. Would you agree with that, Mystery Witness? I think whatever Max says is correct. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's all. That's our episode. Thank you so much to our mystery guest, Shane Christian Cunningham, our pop culture aficionado, and of course, Edgar Wright. You can follow us at Mike on Much on Instagram and Twitter. The Mike on Much podcast is produced by Max Kerman, and I am your host, Mike Bierman. And this last bit goes out to at Jordan Mishi, and I'm hoping I'm saying that name right, on Twitter, who caught that last week uh, the mixer accidentally dropped out our uh, end bit. So, Jordan, and everybody else listening, see you next week if we don't die on the weekend. <laughs>